How many of you guys have ever thought the world was crazy? Like everybody's crazy but you. Anybody ever thought that? How many of you in a crazy family? You're the only sane one in your family. Anybody? Oh, more hands on that one. I've thought, uh, like, I wish everybody was like me because then the world would be better, right? Or everybody should vote like me, then the world would be better. Or everybody should drive like me, and then the world would be better. We'd all get there quicker if everybody drove like me, that's for sure. But then I have interactions with my wife or my kids or my neighbors or people that I work with, and I realize that I'm probably just as broken as everybody else. And there are things about me that seem to keep coming up over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. I keep running into the same problems. I keep slipping into the same bad habits. The same sins keep coming back up in my heart. And I think uh, it's important that we're honest about that. And um, that the biggest threat to me probably isn't outside of me, but it's inside of me. Like, I don't need Satan to tempt me to sin because I think I crave it, right? Like, homeboy runs to it. I don't need to be pushed to do the wrong thing. I don't need somebody else to ruin my marriage. I'm fully capable of ruining my marriage all on my own, and I've almost done it twice, right? Like, I'm, 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 I'm an awesome saboteur of the good things that God is wanting to do in my life, and I, sometimes I, I, can't, I can't stop, it, it, it feels like. But in being aware of your brokenness is probably, that's, that's the start, right? Like G.I. Joe says, and knowing is, there we go, half the bat, whoa, 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 snake eyes right here in the front row. Now I know what he looks like. All right, but right by, knowing is half the battle. So recognizing uh, what your tendency towards sin and dysfunction is, I, I think is a, is a really good start uh, for us to begin working on it. And there'll be times in my life where I feel like I've got it under control and that like that that sin or that pattern of dysfunction is in my past. I've broken this generational cycle, right, that I, I got from my, my parents. And then just when everything's going great again, this sin will creep back up and go, gotcha, right? And then it'll like, like, like screw with me again, like, oh, dang it. Dear God in heaven, I'm sorry again. I told you I'd never do it again. And then I did because I'm a moron, right? And I start feeling really, really bad. Uh, and if you've, Am I the only one? You guys are like, Sean, you need counseling. That's what you need, or therapy. Um, but uh, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, felt the exact same way, and I want you to see it. It's in Romans chapter 7, so if you've got your Bible, go to Romans chapter 7. You can look it up at the Bible app if you want, or it'll be on the screen. Uh, that's a bad thing about having the screens, by the way, is that people don't bring their Bible anymore or even look it up because they're like, I'm not looking it up because I know you're going to show me, right? But Romans chapter 7, uh, verse 21 Paul says, uh, I've discovered the principle of life. Now, it's not a rule, it's a principle. So it's, me, it's a generality. I've discovered a principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I don't know what's more surprising to me that the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, like Paul, the Apostle Paul was this transparent or that God said, yes, that should be in the Bible. Like how many people are this honest about their tendency to keep doing the wrong things over and over again because I think most of us in most circumstances and in most environments try to pretend like we got all of our crap together. Yes or no? Like how often do you find somebody at work that just owns up to the fact that they screwed up the report? Nobody does that. Everybody always blames somebody else. Like in all of the environments that we're in, it seems like everybody is honest about everybody else's problems. Nobody's honest about their own. And then along comes Paul in Romans chapter 7 and says, I really do want to do the right thing, but wanting to do the right thing doesn't help me because I always end up doing the wrong thing. And that's St. Paul saying, I still struggle with doing the wrong thing. And he's writing a, 
He's writing one of the books in the, the Bible. So a dude that's writing the Bible is acknowledging that he's, he still struggles doing the wrong thing all the time. Um, and then he keeps writing about it. He says, I, I love God's law with all my heart. So he says, the problem isn't that I don't love God. That's not my problem. My problem isn't that I don't love the Bible. I love God's law. I love God's word. I love God. So loving God isn't the reason why I keep screwing up. And so now he's speaking my language, right? Like I love God with all of my heart. Why, why can't I get over this? Like why can't, why can't I get victory in this area of my life? Why does this, this keep coming up in my heart and affecting my relationships? Why is it, why is this, dang it, man. Like I think we think that when we become a Christian, that God's going to wave his magic wand over us and make all of our dysfunctions go away. Like you, you prayed, right, when you were in your recovery center, and, and, but why didn't God take away your addiction, right? Like that's, that's the thing we get frustrated. And, and Paul, here's Paul writing the Bible saying, my sin didn't actually go away. Like it, it still comes up. And my problem isn't that I don't love God. I love God. With all my heart, I love him. Verse, verse 23, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. And the power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. So I'm forgiven of my sin the day that I call on Jesus to forgive me and save me. He does. But I'm still stuck with me. Like who I am as a person is still here. Like it's not like my craving for pride or arrogance or recognition or affirmation. Like I'm... I stand before God in Christ, the Bible says. Like I, I spend my whole life making my robe dirty. Jesus spent his whole life without ever getting his robe dirty at all. And the Bible says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become my sin for me. So Jesus takes all of my sin off of me, puts it on himself, and then he takes the full wrath of God for sin on my behalf so that I could put on his clean, spotless robe and stand before God as though I had never sinned. This is how I'm made right with God in Christ because I put on Jesus when I asked him to forgive me, when I gave him my dirty robe, when I gave him my life. So I'm giving you all of me. I want to, like, I'm yours, you're mine. He gives me all of him just like I gave him all of me. And when I stand before God, he sees me as holy and righteous because of Jesus. And I'm thankful to God for that. But you and I both know that just right under these robes, is still the stinky Sean, right? And he says, there's, there's, there's two competing desires in my heart. And in my head, I picture it like dogs, right? Have you ever seen two dogs fight? My dog, Roxy, uh, may she rest in peace. Roxy, Roxy died, 16 years old. She lived two years too long. But um, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Um, but my, we weren't ready to say goodbyes. She was, she asked several times, please say goodbye. But just anyway, uh, Roxy would attack bigger dogs because she was stupid. But our next door neighbor had a boxer and Roxy is a uh, Yorkie Shih Tzu. And the way you say her breed on Puppy Finder would be inappropriate in church, but it's hilarious. But she's a tiny dog, and she's hypoallergenic because my daughter's allergic to everything. So, but she's tiny, and then she would attack bigger dogs. But in my heart, 
excuse me, in my head, I picture it like two dogs fighting. Like there's the dog that wants to do the right thing. There's a dog that wants to do the wrong thing. And they're constantly fighting with each other. And, and truthfully, the dog that wins is the dog that you feed more. This is true. And all Paul's saying is, I just find that the wrong dog wins the fight uh, too often. That's, that's what he's saying. And I become a slave to whatever that dog wants to do. And that's what he's talking about. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Verse 24. So he says, what, what do you say when you've asked God to forgive you a million times? And then you do it again. You say probably what Paul said next. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Like I got, I had, dang it. Right? Like have you ever done it again and then you just said, I suck. Right? And it's not self-loathing and I'm not like I'm despairing of life. I'm just despairing of me. Holy cow. Like I'd, I just hate that I keep, I keep stubbing my toe on the same stinking piece of furniture in my heart, right? And it hurts every time. And sometimes I know, there it is. Don't step in it. You're going to regret it. I don't know. I really want to kick it. <laughs> but you're going to regret it. Wish you didn't. I know. But it was fun for just a second. Right, just made me feel good inside to be able to say, and you do it, and then you're like, ah, now I got to go back and apologize. Like, and then you instantly regret it all over again, right? Uh, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated? Who can help me with this life dominated by sin and death? And that's the end of the sermon. Good luck. (laughs) You're dismissed. Um, Then he answers the question. He says, thank God the answer is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Great, thank you. That was so helpful, right? The answer is Christ is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But practically speaking, what the heck does that mean? Like, how does that help me, right? I mean, the Apostle Paul struggled doing the same sins over and over and over again. What help do I have, man? How am I going to get any better at it? And what does he mean when he says the answer is in Christ Jesus our Lord? And we're going to look at a story in the Hebrew Bible, in the Tanakh, in the first book of the Torah the book of Genesis. And we're going to look at something that happened in the life of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, because I think it'll be helpful. So if you got your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 32. That's where we're going to be at. Now, Abraham uh, uh, had, uh, by the way, everybody's heard of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't have to be a Christian or a Jewish person to have heard that, I think. How many of you guys have heard of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Raise your hand. All right, we all got Jewish friends. So, um, right? So Abraham, Uh, has um, Ishmael, and then he has Isaac. Uh, Ishmael was the illegitimate son, the the son that wasn't from his wife, and then um, uh, Isaac was the son with his wife. Uh, By the way, uh, Ishmael is the ancestor of all all of Arabic peoples, and uh, Isaac is the ancestor of all of the Jewish people, which is why I don't think there'll ever be peace in the Middle East, because they both think that they deserve Abraham's inheritance. Right, so they're both fighting over the same thing, and they have been since 1500 BC. So, uh, still fighting over this. Isn't it crazy? 3,500 years later, and they're both still fighting over which brother should get everything that belonged to Abraham. So Isaac just has two boys. That's all he has. He and his wife have two boys, um, and they're twins. So when they when they give when Rebecca, Isaac when Rebecca Isaac's wife gives birth to the twins, the first baby comes out, and they name him what he looks like. And his name is Esau, which means he's red and hairy. Now, there's a whole lot of other worse names. He could have been fat and ugly. Then they would have just called him Fugly, right? 
So Esau is unfortunate of a meaning. Now, now if your name is Esau, that's not as common as Jacob, but Esau means red and hairy. It could have been a lot worse. But as Rebecca is delivering um, uh, uh, Esau, uh, the red and hairy baby, uh, it was a really weird birth because as they were pulling out his body and then his feet come out, his, the other twin was holding on to the first baby's foot. And he, and he came out like that, hanging on to his foot. Now, my daughter is a uh, labor and delivery nurse in Ohio. And I wanted to ask her last night, have you seen anything weird like that yet? And I, I forgot to call her. And I, I don't know if she'll ever see it. That's, that's weird though, right? That the baby would come out hanging on to the foot. So they named him Foot Grabber. They named him, the word is supplanter. He's the guy who's trying to take the place of the other person. That's his name. His name means deceiver, trickster, covetous, like I want what the other person has. That's his name. So his parents give him the name, the guy who's trying to take other people's stuff. That's the kid's name. So the first guy's red and hairy. Second guy is the guy who wants everybody else's stuff. And then he be, no surprise, this becomes a description of the way that he lives his life. When he's a teenager, his older brother is the apple of his daddy's eye. His older brother's a hunter, and he's all, you know that guy who's shaving in fifth grade? That guy? That's Esau, right? Jacob, in my head, doesn't get hair under his arm until his 20s, but, but Esau's getting it, like, before he's even got double digits in his, num, in his age, right? That's, that's Esau. He's a hunter. Jacob is a little bit of a mama's boy. He works in the kitchen. He helps make clothes. He sews tents. Like he's, this, this is Jacob. Um, Esau goes out hunting and he's gone for a couple of days and he comes back and doesn't catch anything. So he's, he's starving. But Jacob has a pot of porridge on the stove is, is what he does uh, while he's knitting stuff. I don't know. Anyway, Esau comes in and he goes, can I have a bowl of soup? I'm dying. And he goes, well, you're not dying. You know, how brothers do. He goes, dude, I'm starving. You're not starving. I'm starving. Well, if you're starving, then sell me your inheritance for a bowl of my soup. He's like, that's stupid. Just give me a bowl of soup. Well, you said you're starving. Like, if you're really starving, sell me your birthright. I'll trade you your birth, the inheritance, dad's inheritance, for this bowl of soup. And then he says, well, what good is my inheritance if I'm dead? Fine. And he sold his birthright for a bowl. He could have also been named stupid. That, that, would, have, that would have fit, too. He could have been stupid. So he does. A few years later, the dad is ready to make his, to elevate Esau and in those days in that tribal society, when the dad could at some point like elevate the son, and now whatever the son says is equal to what the father says. So now he brings him up. And then now the son starts running the businesses and starts taking over everything and becomes like the chieftain, right? Is essentially in, the, in that world. And so he's ready to make Esau the chieftain, the, the guy who oversees all of, all of their, their, um, their, their wealth. And uh, he tells Esau, go and catch venison for me and bring it back. The mom, Rebecca, hears uh, her husband say this to the, her oldest son. And she goes and tells Jacob, hurry, go get one of the lambs so we can, we can trick your dad. So wait a minute. Was he born this way or was he raised this way? It, does it matter? Like your sin. If you're born with it, or you learned it, or chose it. Does it matter? It's still sin. 
Like if you're born with an addiction to alcohol, that doesn't give you the right to be an alcoholic. If you're born with a temper problem, it doesn't give you the right to hurt people. And if you're born with a predisposition towards multiple sexual partners, it doesn't mean you have a right to cheat on your wife. So nature and nurture doesn't matter, dude. It doesn't belong, right? Like you're not, you're not a robot. You have autonomy. You and I, regardless of our predisposition, are responsible for what we do, right? So whether or not he's born a trickster, which a, a, you, there's evidence that he's born a liar, there's also evidence that he learned it from his mama, like most kids. <laughs> oh, crap, my wife's in this service, I think. Uh, I was going to take that joke out. Anyway, uh, so he goes and, and kills a, a lamb, and then the mom... They, they take the lamb skin and tie it onto his arms and on the back of his neck. And then he, t- he, he, he takes, like he's so good at cooking, he takes lamb, mutton, and he cooks it so that it tastes like venison. And he takes it into his father. And he goes, well, you're back quick. And Jacob, thinking quickly, goes, uh, yeah, the Lord blessed me, and I found an animal real quick as soon as I left. He's like, oh, that's great. He's like, come here a little bit closer because you sound like Jacob. I'm not Jacob, I'm Esau. Come here. He gets closer and then the dad feels the, the back of his neck and the, the lamb's wool on his arm and then he smells the gaminess. He could have been stinky too, by the way. So there's lots of different names he could have had. And the dad goes, that's weird because the voice sounds like Jacob, but the smell is definitely Esau. So then he gives Jacob the birthright uh, and the inheritance uh, and, and the blessing. Like he gives Jacob everything. When Esau comes back and finds out what Jacob has done, he says, may God kill me if I don't kill you before sundown. Rebecca tells her son Jacob, go live with my brother Laban. Goes and lives with his brother Laban. Falls in love with his daughter. He says, can I marry your daughter? He says, if you work for me for seven years, you can marry my daughter. So then he's, the Bible says that those seven years went, was like a day because he was so in love with her. Then he gets on their wedding night. She's got the full veil. He can't see her, obviously. Then they go into the tent. It's dark. They don't have electricity back then. Not a surprise to anybody here, right? But he wakes up in the morning, and he sees his wife. He thinks is Rachel without her veil, and he realizes it's her ugly older sister. The trickster got tricked, and he's ticked. Oh, okay. Homeboy's upset because he had to eat some of his own porridge, Right? Like, that's essentially the deal. And here's how the Bible says that she's ugly. The Bible actually says this, that she's ugly. By saying she had tender eyes. What the, what the heck does that mean? I don't know. Like her, tender, her tender eyes made your eyes sore to look at her. I don't know what this means. One translation says her eyes looked at each other. It says that. It does. Like, I don't, I don't know what it means that she had tender eyes. All I know is... That's not the dude he wanted to marry. So then Laban says, well, if you work for me for seven more years, you can get Rachel next week. Poor, right? It's a jacked up family. He stays there for 20 years and gets rich off of deceiving his father-in-law. Everything about this dude's life is deception. Like he is the definition of deceit and he's the heel grabber. He's Jacob, and he is what his name says. That's who he is. And then in chapter 31, God comes to Jacob and gives him the same deal that he gave Abraham his grandfather. 
He says, if you leave this land and go back to the land of your fathers and your kindred, he's only got one kindred and it's a kin dude, right? It's Esau. Go back to the land of your fathers and your kindred, then I will be with you. And just like Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, Jacob believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness, that's when Jacob made a decision, I'm gonna go all in with God and I'm gonna go back and make things right. That's what he does. In chapter two, where we pick it up right now, He's got all of his family together and he gets to the river Jabbok, which is the dividing line between the wilderness and Esau's property. And he sends his servants ahead. And by now, he's, Jacob is a wealthy, like Jacob is a moving city. He's got servants and people that do things and sword, bow and arrow, like he's like in cattle and sheep and like he's, he's, like he's a crazy wealthy man. He's got everybody, and uh, he sends servants with like a thousand sheep as a gift to Esau. Please go tell Esau I'm coming, and I'm sorry, 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 sorry. Here's a bunch of sheep. Please don't kill me. And the servants on the day that we're about to read the Bible, the servants when they get back to Esau said he refused the gift, and he heard you were on the you were coming, and he's already on his way to meet you with an army of four hundred men. That's when he pooped his pants just a little bit. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis 32. Genesis 32, verse 22. During the night, this is the night that he found out. So during the day, he found out that Jacob refused your gift and he's on his way with an army. That night, during the night, Jacob got up. So he went to bed, but he, he can't sleep. I'm, di- I'm going to die tomorrow. Who would be able to sleep the night before they die? Right? Uh, so he gets up. And then he takes his two wives, the two servant wives, told you it was awkward and complicated, and his 11 sons, and he crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, and then he sent all of his possessions over there, this left Jacob over here alone in the camp. So he's on this side of the river, all alone, and he's just got to get his head right. The Bible says a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. <laughs> That's weird. He just wants some alone time, and some dude walks up and goes, you looking at me? You looking at me? You ready to throw it down? I'm ready to throw it. What? Right? Somebody busts a beer bottle, and they just go at it. They start tangling. Like, that's just random. Like, no, we don't. I think words had to have been spoken. That's just weird that a dude would just walk up to Jacob when he's all by himself on this side of the river and just starts fighting him. But they start, they start fighting. Now, we're going to find out that Jacob... Knows this ain't just some rando, right? It's not just some random dude that he's fighting with because of what he, so somehow something was said. Jacob knows this is, it's just a weird thing to happen, man. It's been a crappy day anyway. He's been up all night long and now some, some guy walking by wants to fight me. I'll see it through, right? What was that? There's a kid movie where they start scheduling all these different times to go fight at the flagpole all day long or whatever, any, sorry, probably some after-school special nobody remembers. But anyway, um, that's what happens. So when the man, verse 23, when the man saw that he was not going to win the match, he touched Jacob's hip, tink, and knocked it out of socket. So this man physically was was a match, but Jacob was no match. Like when this man was ready for the fight to be over, the fight was going to be over. Like Jacob was not as much in charge of this fight as Jacob thought he was in charge of this fight, right? And then the guy, all right, we're, we're done. We're, we're, you know what? We're done. Dink. Knocks his hip out of joint. By the way, to this day, 
uh, Jewish people, uh, conservative Jewish people, don't eat the gristle at the top of the hip bone out of respect for the story. Um, it, and that's, uh, uh, I think that's interesting. Uh, when the man saw that he would not win, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of socket. Then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. All right, that's odd. So Jacob knows that this guy is in a position to bless him or curse him. So he knows a little bit more about this guy than what we thought when they first started fighting. He says, I'm not going to, like, you, you need to bless me. You need to bless me. And I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. So I read a few different theologians take on this. Why did the, this man want to go before the breaking of dawn? And there's no conclusive answer for that. The idea, though, is that this interaction was just for Jacob. When dawn comes, everybody on the other side of the Jabbok River would see him, and then now this becomes public, but this was a private thing uh, between this, this man and, um, and Jacob. Now, um, so we'll keep reading. Uh, let me go, for the dawn is breaking, but Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Verse 27, what is your name? The man asked, and Jacob replied, I'm Jacob. I'm the liar. I'm the deceiver, I'm the thief. That's what I am. Like, and here's the thing. This man isn't just any man because Jacob goes on to say that I have seen the face of God and I live. This is one of the theophanies in the Old Testament and the Tanakh. And the theophany is the religious word for the physical manifestation of the presence of God. Now, this isn't the first time. Uh, the first time actually would have been in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Right, that was the physical manifestation of God, God's presence. Happened again when the angel of the Lord comes to Abram and names him Abraham and, and shows up and talks to Sarai and calls her Sarah. And we know that it's not just an angel because an angel would not receive worship. A demon might, but not an angel because all the other angels that we read about in the Bible, whenever somebody bows down to them, they say, stand up, right? Because like, don't worship me, I'm just an angel. But the angel of the Lord in the Hebrew Bible receives worship. Abraham worshiped the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord received the worship. This is the physical presence of God. And Moses uh, with the burning bush, and Balaam with his, with his donkey, there's the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord shows up several times in the Hebrew Scriptures. The last time the angel of the Lord ever shows up or the presence of God manifests itself, physically speaking, is in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, the Bible says, in the beginning the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. By who? The word. Now I can be, my wife's name is Billy. Uh, married a chick with a dude's name. She doesn't look like a dude, which makes it a whole lot easier for me to kiss her. But, um, sorry. Is that, okay. Anyway, she doesn't look like a dude at all, which I love. Anyway, um, sorry. Anyway, I can be with Billy, but I can't be with Billy and be Billy. That's odd. John chapter 1 says the word is with God and the word was God. This is that whole idea of in the beginning God said let us, the singular God said let us, plural, create man in our image, Genesis 1.26. says that even in the Jewish Bible. Jewish theologians have no idea why Moses used God as both singular and plural. We do. God has a word and has a spirit. His word becomes flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word of God becomes flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glories of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. What's his name? This is Jesus before he's Jesus. 
This is the Word of God made flesh, fighting with, with Jacob. And he says, what is your name? And if God came to you right now and said, what is your name? Based on your cycle of dysfunction and sin, what would you say? My name is regret. My name is lust. My name is addiction. My name is alcoholism. My name is abuse. My name is loneliness. My name is hate. Sorry. Like, what name would you give? The angel of the Lord fights with him all night long and says, what's your name? My name is Jacob, man. I'm just me. Here's the blessing. You want to know what the blessing is? Go back to it. Your name, verse 28, will no longer be shame. Your name will no longer be abuse. Your name will no longer be hate. It won't be lust. It won't be greed. It won't be selfishness or pride. Your name is no longer alcoholic. Your name is no longer drug addict. Your name is no longer divorcee. Your name is no longer loneliness. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and you have won. I'm giving you a new identity. Jacob said, please tell me your name. And God says, why do you want to know my name? Then he walked away. <laughs> I love that. Because God don't owe you nothing. I got questions. Now he can answer them if he wants to. But he don't have to tell me nothing. Like, what does God owe you? You know what I'm saying? Nothing. I love that. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And God goes, I ain't telling you. And walks away. Blesses him and walks away. Jacob named the place, verse 30, Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face and my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. And for all we know, he may have limped for the rest of his life as a reminder. Um, there's a famous pastor, he's famous among theologically conservative Orthodox Christians named Tim Keller. Uh, he's pastor of Redeemer Church in Manhattan. I'm a huge fan. Wrote a book called Reason for God, uh, The Prodigal God. Like all of his books are for the skeptics. And he's an academic and brilliant, brilliant. Uh, he did a sermon on this, this verse, that I, this, this whole wrestling with God and the name changing that I listened to. And so I just pulled out a quote from him about this. And he said, how do you expect God to respond to a man who, is, who has obeyed him at the risk of his life? Because he said, go back and face your brother, even though he knows he might die. He's put his life on the line to obey the Lord's word and to follow the Lord's will and is seeking God in prayer and who's filled with fear and at the end of his rope. How does God respond to a man who's utterly obedient, seeking him in prayer, scared and at the end of his rope? What does God do to a man like that? He beats the living tar out of him. He knocks him down, literally. He assaults him. He puts him in a headlock and he maims him for the rest of his life. This is not a God of anybody's religion. This is not a God of anybody's imagination. Why is this text even in the Bible? Um, uh, it must have happened. Why would, uh, who would have thought this up? 
What kind of an idiot would, would, would invent a God like this? Who could have imagined a God like this? So this must have happened. This must be a real God because nobody else could have invented him. Having said that, this text, in a way that's more vivid than any other place I know in the entire Bible, tells us that in general, God has to wrestle us into a transformed life rather than comfort us into a transformed life. Read that again, preacher. God wrestles us into a transformed life. He doesn't comfort us into a transformed life. See, I thought it's just supposed to be like, like I said my prayers. I went to church. I, I did the thing. Now you do the thing, right? But it's a constant struggle. It's a battle. It's a, it's a battle. Paul described it as a war that's happening inside of me. That's what it is. God called Jacob in chapter 31, and that's when Jacob chose to place his faith and trust in God. That's his conversion moment. Having placed his faith in God, though, God gives him a brand new identity. And while sometimes we thought it was going to be, well, somehow we thought it was going to be easy once we placed our faith in Jesus, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible, because the Bible actually says that we have two natures at war within us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 6 says this, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, once you were Jacob. That's what he says. You used to live in sin because you're Jacob. Just like the rest of the world, who are Jacob's. Obeying the devil, the commander, the powers in the unseen world, and the spirit is at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. They are Jacob. All of us used to live that way. Why? Because we're Jacob. Following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature, whether we were born this way or learned to be this way or chose to be this way, doesn't matter. I'm Jacob. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else, because we are Jacob. But God is so rich in mercy that he didn't squash you even though you're Jacob. And he loves you so much, even though you're addicted to your sin, that even though we were dead because of our sins, even though Jacob is constantly killing me and robbing me of every good thing, he, God, gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And it's only by God's grace that you have been saved and given a new name, Israel. For he raised us from the dead along with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with him. When God makes us alive spiritually, we now have a new identity. We go from trickster, we go from Jacob, and we become Israel. But that doesn't mean that Jacob disappears. He's still here. Like, practically speaking, when the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gives the right to become children of God. They are reborn. They are remade. They are given a new identity. They go from Jacob to Israel, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. It's a second birth. It's a rebirth. It's a renaming. It's a new identity. I go from Jacob to Israel. But what does this practically mean for me? And I think the best illustration of this goes back to my freshman and sophomore year of college. I went to a Bible college. Remember, it's a Bible college. And I had a gigantic poster of Marilyn Monroe on my wall. And she's wearing a formal gown. And she's leaning over seductively, as you can imagine, or don't imagine. And she's got Chanel number five. And she's putting it right here. And I've got that poster on my wall in my dorm room at a Bible college. Why? Because I know it would tick everybody off. 
And I also know it technically didn't violate the student handbook and they couldn't make me take it down. So I had that poster up. That's Sean. That's, that's the Jacob Sean. And then I got married to Billy. Do you think that Marilyn Monroe poster made it to our married dorm, yes or no? N yes, no, it did not. <laughs> no way, you know why? Because it doesn't fit my new identity. That's why there are things you used to do that bother you now. Why? Your DNA changed. God gave you a new identity. That doesn't mean Jacob's gone, right? You set him down. Here's the crazy thing. God told Jacob, no more shall you be called Israel. But excuse me, no more shall you be called Jacob because now you are Israel. He goes by Jacob and Israel interchangeably for the rest of the entire Bible. God says this again in chapter 35. No longer shall you be Jacob, you shall be Israel from now on. But he still goes by Jacob and Israel for the rest of the entire Bible. Jacob, every time he's in the flesh, Israel, every time he's in, he's, he's in obedience to God. That's what Paul's talking about. I'm Israel, but that doesn't mean Jacob's gone. All it means is Jacob don't own nothing no more. Those of you who've never turned from sin again following Jesus, keep working on it, right? But Jacob owns everything. All you got is a Jacob. But those of us who turn from sin and begin following Jesus, God gives us a new DNA. He gives us a new identity. You are now Israel. What this means, though, is that now I have a choice on which dog wins. That's what this means. And so if the wrong dog is winning, it's not because that dog owns anything. He doesn't. It's just I've been feeding the wrong dog. That's my fault, not God's fault. Right? That's why Paul says, I die daily for the sake of knowing Christ. What's he saying? Every day, I kill Saul. He goes from Saul to Paul after his theophany, after his encounter with God. He goes from Saul to Paul. I die daily. Every day, I make a conscious choice. Am I the old Sean or the new Sean? Every day. Every day. Every day. And it's a struggle. And it's a struggle. And it's a struggle. And the struggle doesn't go away. Ephesians chapter 4 says, with the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do. Live no longer as Jacob does. For they, Jacob, is hopelessly confused. His mind is full of darkness. They wander far from the life that God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against them. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Jesus. Since you have heard about Jesus, have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old Jacob, your old nature, and your former way of life. That's a conscious choice. You need to recognize this doesn't fit me. Now I'm still doing this as a married man. Every day I have single man thoughts pop into my head. And that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> right? And every day I make a conscious choice. I put to death the single man Sean. Because it ain't who I am now. Say, thank you. <laughs> I thought that might be my wife for a second. <laughs> Amen. Preach. I make a conscious choice to put to death the Jacob that is still in me, right? Like a Jacob doesn't disappear. He just loses authority. You still let him drive all the time. Knock that sucker out. Carjack that joker. I just wanted to say carjacking in church. I did it. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit of God renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new Israel, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Your prayer is for God to change your mind and your heart. That's what your prayer is. 
Your pattern should be to spend time with God in the Bible. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. So you're just not even fighting Jacob anymore. You're just letting him take over. Well, what, what parts of God's word should you hide in your heart? That's just talking about memorizing scripture. I don't know. You didn't tell me what your Jacob is. But you know who will find a verse for you? Google. Google will help you to put to death the old Jacob. Do Bible verses that deal with and write your Jacob. It'll pull up a whole bunch of verses. Read one of them. Find one you like. Write it on a three by five card and put it in your dashboard or in your bathroom mirror. Memorize it. Once you got that memorized, go find another one. Right? Like, like if you got a gun, don't carry one bullet. Right? Don't be Barney Fife. Anybody old school, right? Anybody over 80? Anybody over 80? Remember Barney Fife? All right. Yeah, one bullet. Bro, you got six chambers. Load it up, right? Like how serious are you about breaking this cycle of sin? One verse, one prayer doesn't do it. It's a struggle. And truthfully, God might have to break you before he frees you. He might need to just reach out and just maim you. But if it takes me being broken by God for me to be set free from this sin... And dear God in heaven, break me to a million pieces. Break me. And that's your prayer. What you can't do is just show up at church, put a check in a box, and go on like everything's better. Bro, fight your demons. Fight your Jacob. Don't lay down and die, because he will kill you. He'll rob you of everything good God's ever wanted to do in your life. But you are not powerless. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jacob does not own nothing now. You are Israel. Own it. Man up. Woman up. I don't know what to go with that one. But if you would bow your head with me, it will get a chance to have our Jacob moments. Dear God in heaven, Thank you for loving me exactly like I am and then loving me too much to leave me alone as I am. Change anything in my heart that you want to change. God, I'm sorry for the way that I keep going back to the new sins, to the old sins. God, I'm sorry. Help me to put that to death. Help me to let it go. I, that doesn't belong in my life anymore because I'm not the same person I am. I was anymore. You've made all things new. You've put on a different robe. You clothed me in Jesus' righteousness. You've called me your own, your kid. Forgive me for still acting like an orphan. I'm yours. I belong to you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for setting me free from my slavery to sin. Forgive me for the way that I keep choosing it. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Let me smell it coming before I step in it. And when I do, help me to seek forgiveness through repentance and run as far as I can. God, help us to accept our new identity. Maybe you don't have that, so your prayer is, God, give me a new identity. I want to be rescued from my sin. I don't want this to define me anymore. Jesus, thank you for dying as a payment for my sin, for taking my dirt on yourself and giving me 
you. Thank you for making me your own. Forgive me, save me from it. Place your spirit in me and point out every time I'm bringing the wrong poster in my house. God, I love you with all of my heart and I'm thankful that you love me first. In Jesus' name, we all pray and say together, amen.